Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Well, it is the day we have been waiting for. It is Tuesday, November 8th. Today is the day of the midterm elections. If you still are waiting to get out and vote, remember this. If you are in line at your polling place when closing time occurs, stay in line. You have the right to vote. If you make a mistake on your ballot, ask for a new one. If you go to your polling place and the machines aren't working, ask them for a paper ballot. If a poll worker says your name isn't on their book, isn't on their list of registered voters, ask for a provisional ballot. You are entitled entitled to a provisional ballot even if you are not in the book. If you have any problems, the ACLU has an election protection hotline. I have uh, tweeted out the number because there's a number for English, a number for Spanish, a number for Arabic, and another number should you speak Bengali, Cantonese, Hindu, Urdu, Korean, Mandarin, Tagalog, or Vietnamese. Go to Twitter. As of today, I'm still on Twitter, but it's a day-to-day thing. At Joan Esposito, C-H-I. Scroll through my tweets and you will find this, these phone numbers. If you have any problems, if you have any questions. Other than that, we fought the good fight. Now we just wait to see the results of the only poll that matters, and that's the poll of the people who voted. And this is not going to be settled tonight. Remember the old days when there was no mail-in ballot? You know, there was no, in many places, no early voting. And we all went out on election day. And then that night, we knew who the winners and the losers were. Yeah, that probably isn't going to happen tonight with most of the races. There may be some. There may be some that we can call, um, but, you know, you've got to look at this as a marathon. It could be two or three days. You know, some of the races, particularly Fetterman and Oz in Pennsylvania, it could be a couple of days before we know how that shakes out. And the Republicans have said they're going to try the same nonsense that Donald Trump tried. Because the Republican Party always exhorts its members not to vote early, but to vote on Election Day, that usually means for many races, the early results that come in will make it look like Republicans are there, that there's a red tidal wave, that there's a red wave, that they're winning everything. Eh. And don't be surprised When Republicans say, Carrie Lake's already pretty much said she's going to do this, uh, that tonight they're going to say, well, we should stop counting the votes. Remember that from Donald Trump? We should stop counting the votes now. We have enough votes. We don't need any more votes. Too many votes. Get rid of those other votes. We just like these votes. Don't panic. 
don't panic when there are certain races that you care about that at first blush appear to be going to the Republican Party. Because many, many, many more Democrats than Republicans vote early and vote by mail. Many, many, enough to sway an election. So we're just going to take some deep, calming, cleansing breaths. And by the end of the week, we should know where we stand. Okay? Remember that quote from Martin Luther King Jr.? Let us realize the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There are a lot of white people who are angry and fearful and panicked because they see all the reports that in another couple of decades, white people are going to be a minority, black and brown people are going to be the majority. There is a younger generation, a younger generation that has a whole different idea about gender a younger generation that has a whole different idea about racial equity and fairness. And as they mature and start voting in larger numbers, that is going to swing this country, however radical we are right now. This country, over the next few decades, is going to swing back to a more liberal, a more progressive, a more humane viewpoint Every election is a battle, but don't let the battles make you lose sight of the bigger picture of the war. You can win a battle here, you can lose a battle here. But what matters is the war. And with the more, frankly, socially enlightened attitude of the younger generations, which I'm by all reports, they're turning out in greater numbers than they've than they have for a midterm election in years. So we shall see. But as this younger, more socially responsible generation grows up and starts voting in larger numbers. As the people whose. Rights have been suppressed, begin to become the majority in this country. We are going to see the inevitable shift. There may be some pain, especially for those of us who are older, that we have to live through on the way to get there. And we hope we live long enough to make sure we get there. But get there, we will. And because people see this, that the younger generation isn't so easily terrorized by the threat of the dangerous black person who's coming to get you and going to take your job. And Younger people aren't as weirded out by that. Younger people aren't as weirded out by, you know, they've grown up with gay relationships and gay marriage. And it's just like, of course, it's it's just a part of the life that they have grown up knowing. And... um They're going to make their voices heard in greater numbers, particularly as they get older. And the scared white people who are so afraid of being replaced will eventually either 
adapt or get out of the way. We're going to either be adapt or be overwhelmed by those who are more reasonable. So here we are at Election Day. You've done great work. Congratulations. Hopefully you'll stick around with us tonight from 6 to 10. Uh, Tim Hogan, Patty Vasquez, and I are going to be talking to a large and interesting cast of characters about what they've seen. If we have any results, we will be talking about them. It's going to be a long night. It's going to be a fun night. I strongly urge you, if you are interested in joining us tonight, to get on your computer or use the um, like the TuneIn radio app or an app like that on your phone. Our signal, because we're an AM station, is not always super strong at night. And um, besides, I don't want you sitting out in the driveway, you know, with your car radio on. Anyway, you should be in the comfort of your own home tonight with the adult beverage of your choice as you put your feet up and um, and see how we do. Remember, a, a year and a half ago, every single pundit that you could find to read or listen to all said the same thing. Oh, forget it. It's going to be. It's going to be all Republicans all the time. Well, you know what? It ain't. There's a lot of races that are really, really close, and nobody saw that coming. Everybody said, well, it's the midterm election. Historically, when a president has both houses and the midterm comes up, the president loses one or both houses. It's like a done deal. Except that it ain't a done deal in a lot of places. Wisconsin is really close. Whether Mandela Barnes wins or Ron Johnson wins is most likely going to fall down to turnout. If there is a big turnout, Mandela Barnes will be Wisconsin's next senator. If people decide that it's too much trouble, they didn't get they didn't get to an early place, they decide they're not going to go today. Mm-mm. If that happens, if enough of those people stay home, then Ron Johnson, crazy Ron Johnson, who wants to put Social Security up for a vote every year. Ron Johnson, who, um, you know, there's some real radical people in Congress who've pretty much said that if the Republicans take over Congress, one of their big activities going forward is going to be to impeach. They're going to impeach Joe Biden. They're going to impeach Kamala Harris. They're not sure why in interviews. It's like, well, we don't really we don't. It doesn't matter why. We're just going to do it. We're just going to do it. You were good. They're going to be impeached for no reason or a reason that is decided on after the fact. Why? Because they just want to make life difficult. Impeachment is a process that is, that is supposed to be the result of really consequential bad behavior. And it shines a light on it and hopefully gives Congress a chance to correct it. It's not a political tit for tat. Oh, you've impeached Donald Trump. So we get in power. We're going to impeach Joe Biden. So there, nah, 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 nah. That's the Republican Party that exists today. <sighs> By the way, you know those crazy newspapers that we've been getting in Illinois? Uh, apparently, um, other people have been getting those crazy newspapers too. Yeah. Uh, it isn't just, it isn't just Illinois. 
those crazy newspapers have been showing up in Minnesota. They've been showing up in Arkansas. They have been showing up in Virginia. Um, one of the things, uh, how crazy are they? One of the papers is telling people that if they vote Democratic, um, drag queens are going to be in every school. Did you know that? Did you know that? And yet there will be people who see this and go, really? Really? The depth of stupidity that I have seen from some people in this country is just staggering. It is just absolutely staggering. Anywho, um, we're going to talk more. We're going to take a break and be right back with it right after this. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. The Hal Sparks Radio Program. Grandpa's just rage tweeting, and Ivanka's not calling right now and saying, Dad, what are you writing? You can't write somebody as a death wish. You know what I mean? Nobody's even bothering to have that conversation anymore, which is in many ways a good sign. It means that they're not expecting anything from him. They've had conversations with him. They know he's not running. They know this is a bluff. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. We're already getting some calls. Let's go to the phone lines. Maria is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Maria. How are you? Hi, Joan. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Fine day. <laughs> yes, yes, you indeed. Know, I, I, you know what? Everything that's happened over the last six years or seven years, and all the contentious actions of of these politicians, I'm just sort of shell shocked with the thought that oh my god, these races are so tight, and. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm trying to stay as positive as as as, as I can. Um, I'm sure there's going to be folks that are not qualified who we think um, would be better off off the ballot, who will probably get in, but maybe they'll be kicked out because they they were found to be have uh, have done something criminal. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> maybe January sixth. But I, you know, hey, you know, hope's internal, right? But that's right. I'm, I'm just really upset, really upset about what's going on in Georgia and some other states when Kemp uh, signed a bill that would basically prevent people from voting. They have the right to vote. Yeah. And I just wondered whether we can get a Congress that could put together a bill that will guarantee every U.S. citizen the right to vote, regardless of any state laws. And if that's something they could put out. Well, you know, um, under the Biden administration in his first two years, they did put together a bill to protect voting rights. And it passed in Nancy Pelosi's Democratic led Congress. But because when it got to the Senate, it was subject to the filibuster and they couldn't get 60 Republicans to sign on. It died in the Senate. 
So, yes, there's obviously people acknowledge that there is a need at the national level for voting protections, particularly since, you know, we had the Voting Rights Act, but the Supreme Court has all but gutted it. So we yeah, we need to reinstate that in some manner. You're absolutely right. And and you know what? With the Supreme Court, let's add two more justices, because this is ridiculous. We're going to be stuck with these conservative Nut cases as our justices who are making really bad decisions. And um, I'm all for adding two more. Let's add two more, you know. <laughs> um, hey, I hear you. You know, people people don't often realize that the, the size of the Supreme Court is not set. It's not set in stone. And over the years, it has been bigger. It has been less. It has been changed. And there's um, there's. Joe Biden has said that he's not right now really interested in changing the number. I think uh, he realizes that that's something he doesn't have the votes for. But uh, term limits, I mean, even if it wouldn't necessarily affect the yahoos we have on there now, there's got to be a way to make the Supreme Court more responsive and more more equitable. Maria, thank you so much. Really appreciate you calling in today. Let's go back to the phone lines. You, too. Dan is calling in from Rosemont. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. What bothers me more than anything else about this whole thing is these people on the right have absolutely no sense of decency. Uh, My case, I'm going to cite last night on Tucker Carlson's show. He had a doctor, a Fox News contributor, saying that voters in Pennsylvania need to realize that Don Fetterman may not live another five years uh, that he's seen stroke victims like this. And there's a greater than 60 percent chance that he won't live. And uh, uh, voters really need to consider this before before marking their box tomorrow. But these people have no decency. They're vile people. Uh, And I, I just and what amazes me more is how many people think this stuff is all okay. Yeah. Um. Fox News has done more damage to this country than I think is quantifiable. Sadly, there are so many people who don't even sample anything else. I mean, forget about MSNBC, even CNN or or any other source of information. It's, you know, especially I'm sorry to say with a lot of older folks, it seems to be all Fox all the time. And that is not... That is not an organization that can be trusted for fair, balanced, honest information. They're not journalists. They're enablers. They're propagandists. And as a matter of fact, whenever they have to defend themselves in court, they always argue that they're not journalists. They're entertainers. They're entertainers. They can't be held to the same kind of standards that journalists have to have to adhere to because they're not journalists. They're entertainers. We're just all out for a good time. Exactly. And that's what Rush Limbaugh used to do. You know, mm-hmm. he'd get caught in what big, huge lies. And then he, 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 he moved the goalposts. Oh, I'm just an entertainer. Yeah. <laughs> but then, yeah well, the you know, fairly have- early in his Rush Limbaugh's career when he was when he was turning out to be really popular, um, Republican operatives went to meet with him because they were like, oh, my God, this guy is like perfect for us. 
and they sat down with him, the story goes, and they were like, you know, here's what we believe in. What do you believe in? And he looked at them and he was like, I don't have any any certain beliefs that rule my show. He said, I want to be popular. I want people to listen to me. He said, I will take any stance necessary to uh, engage my listeners. It basically, he said he's not he doesn't care about Republican causes. He cares about making money and being famous. And he will take any position that he needed to take going forward to make that happen. And he was very successful at it. Very successful at it. I lived, I lived in Sacramento, California, when Rush was still local. And God is my witness. I swear this is true. I called him up to complain one time. This is when he was local uh, about how biased he was and how he doesn't ever have guests or whatever. And he told me on the air, God, I wish I had a recorder. He said, Dan, if I got me ratings, I'd be a liberal. That really <laughs> happened, Joan. <laughs> have a great one. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, let's squeeze in one more call real quick. Bobby from Indiana is on the line. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Whoa, not too bad, Joan. And <laughs> if you vote for me, I guarantee you a drag queen in every school and a rubber <laughs> chicken in every pot. <laughs> um, uh, I wouldn't but, mind a drag queen here at home. I think that would make mornings a lot more cheery. Oh, well, uh, anyway... Um, I do know that uh, for sure that um, my sister and all three of her girls have voted, and uh, they all voted solid Democrat. Excellent. And and uh, my other sister and uh, one of her daughters um, have voted, and they voted Democrat, and they live in of all ungodly places, Florida. Oh my! So, uh, so I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe we're going to do pretty good. Maybe better than we thought, huh? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, I think that the polls don't really know how to gauge who's coming out and who's voting. I think that we have to be patient, and I have to think we have to wait for the results to come in. And I, for one, am um, am very hopeful. We are going to do well in this election, hopefully better even than we planned to do. Bobby, thank you so much for the call. Always uh, like talking to you. Take care of yourself, okay? You do. Yeah, I will. We are going to take a break. One of the newsletters that I read every day is Popular Information, written by a guy named Judd Legum. And if you do not get his uh, newsletter in your email box, you need to start doing it right now because uh, this guy follows the money and that is the best way to find out how how people and corporations are really functioning anyway i'm let's get to the break we're going to be back with him right after this facebook message us instagram follow us twitter tweet us they keep me connected let's get social on the socials wcpt 820 there's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
In the early days of my doing this radio show, there were a lot of places I looked for information. And one of the places that I really enjoyed was a new, relatively newish newsletter put out by Judd Legum called Popular Information. As a matter of fact, I don't know if he remembers this, but he was one of the first guests that I had on in the early days of the of the show. Well, Judd Legum has gone on to build a newsletter that is wildly popular, incredibly well followed to the point where lots of times the people that he writes about actually, especially corporations, will change their behavior based on his reporting. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Judd back to our radio show. Hello, Judd. How are you? Good to be back with you. Well, it is wonderful to have you back. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your newsletter and the reporting you do. And to anybody who's never done any kind of reporting, the kind of work you do, digging in, following the money, figuring out what went where, that is so hard to do. It is so labor intensive and you do it so well. And it is such important work because otherwise, how do we know whether a company like AT&T means what it says when it says, well, we're as a company, this is the stand that we take. We support gay rights. Oh, but of course, with this other hand, we're also giving lots of money to uh, Republicans who want to get rid of gay marriage, but don't pay attention to that. Judd shines a light on that kind of behavior and hypocrisy. And oftentimes, as I said, uh, companies respond to what he's done and reported, and sometimes they change their ways. Um, most, you know, Judd, I was going to, I wanted to talk to you about this um, Carrie Lake tweet that you commented on on Twitter. But before we get to that, um, I want to I talk to you about this um Exchange the exchanges you've been having with David Sachs. David Sachs, for those of you who don't know, is one of Elon Musk's buddies who apparently is providing some role in running the new Twitter. And he's gotten into a bit of a snit with Judd. Judd, can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. You know, Twitter is something that is dear, dear to my heart. I've been on it. Uh, you know, for many years, well over a decade, and it, it actually is one of the ways in which you know, kind of get the word out about the work that I do and my newsletter and things like that. Uh, obviously, Elon Musk purchasing it uh, is, is a major change uh, for the site. One of the things that Musk has said, really from when he first signed this deal, and that was on and off and on and off, but ultimately he, he concluded the deal, was that he was not going to prohibit or censor any speech that wasn't illegal. So that was his goal. If you can say it legally, uh, then you could say it on Twitter. Now, that doesn't make too much sense uh, to, to me because to have a functional uh, communications platform, you may want to uh, prohibit all sorts of speech that isn't necessarily illegal. It's not necessarily legal to promote a fake news story about the election or how to vote, but you you may not want that to spread on your on mm-hmm. your platform. But anyway, Musk said he was going to take a different approach until once he took over, 
some famous people, comedian Kathy Griffin, there was an actor from Mad Men who did the same thing, changed their the name on their Twitter account to Elon Musk, changed the picture to the one he used, and then started tweeting, you know, dumb, silly things as if they were Musk. Sachs said, and, and, and then those accounts were, were banned, basically, suspended. Um, and, and I got into it with Sachs a little bit because he was saying is, no, this is consistent with what we always said because this wasn't protected speech. This was, this was fraud. It was identity theft. <laughs> um, but but actually, uh, for anyone familiar with First Amendment law, it, it's a parody, um, and that actually is very explicitly um, protected uh, under the under the law. It was uh, actually Larry Flint, uh, the late founder of Hustler Magazine, and had some litigation with Jerry Falwell. And that court case, that Supreme Court case, established. That, that parody was uh, was protected speech. So my only point is not that necessarily, you know, they shouldn't be able to ban people who are doing parodies or they shouldn't be able to make decisions about what makes sense for Twitter or not. It's that this notion that they were going to just let anything go was, was BS from the beginning. And mm-hmm. really what they're doing is censoring speech that they don't like, like people making fun of Elon Musk, while allowing all sorts of, um, you know, I, what I would say is objectively more harmful speech to, to flourish. So that's that was the subs that was the, the sub and substance of our. You get the feeling that when Elon made those pronouncements, it never occurred to him that he was going to become the butt of the joke. Cause I saw, um, with when, as soon as this started happening, the first, the first parody account I saw was by some former NFL football player who I'm not a sports person I'd never heard of. And they did the same thing, even though the, the at was still their name. The title of the account was Elon Musk. The picture was Elon Musk. And he was, you know, he was tweeting absurd things like, you know, for those of you who want to be the backup food supply for the Mars mission, start eating a lot right now and fill out an application with NASA. I mean, just completely, utterly absurd things. And um, and and that was one of the first parody accounts I saw. And then like a day or two later, I saw a tweet from Elon Musk that said, all parody accounts must be clearly labeled as parody. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, somebody's got a, somebody's got a little bit of a, of a weak spot, a sore spot for this kind of thing. I mean, even Judd, Valerie Bertinelli as, you know, as mom American and apple pie, as Valerie Bertinelli, Bertinelli started um, spoofing him. But see, she was smart. Well, I guess what some celebrities are doing now, is they change their name to Elon Musk, they put out a bunch of ridiculous tweets, and then they change it back before yeah, <laughs> before yeah. Twitter she can got, grab them. She got out. She got out. She got out before the before the knife came down, before the hammer came down, for sure. So but I think you know. Go ahead, Joan. No, I was just going to say with with some people uh, a little leery of what's going on at Twitter and predicting that it might be. Well, if he doesn't run it into the ground with bankruptcy, that it just might become such an unpleasant place that people don't want to be there. Uh, is there another social media site that you are um, 
also on or maybe moving to? Well, what I've done so far is that there's a there's a decentralized kind of Twitter alternative called Mastodon. A little more confusing to use, but it's not too bad. And uh, a lot of people, you know, not a lot, not a lot of people relative to Twitter, but a good number of people have kind of decamped there. What I'm doing is basically just my tweets are publishing there as well. So Mm -hmm. sort of a a fail safe. You know, I think that the real danger here with Twitter, as far as the future of the site, is that, you know, these earlier pronouncements by Musk, where he essentially was saying, anything was going to go as far as content really freaked the advertisers out. That's most of Twitter's revenue. So many of them have paused their ads at the same time. You know, he's trying to reassure them. Oh no, we're still, we're not making any changes to our content moderation policy. Then he announces changes uh, (laughs) just willy nilly from, from his, from his account. And, you know, he he has to very quickly you know he in one sense he bought twitter but it's more similar to really a leveraged buyout than a purchase because 13 billion dollars was added to twitter's books as debt he needs to generate a billion dollars a year from twitter just to pay the the interest and principal on those loans and Twitter wasn't really generating any money when he bought it. Sometimes it would have a small profit. Other times it would have a, a loss. So he's got to go from that uh, to a billion dollars a year. And I think thus far, he's probably significantly worse in their financial situation. So I, I do think, you know, I, I think over, you know, Twitter has its pros and cons. I do like that it's it's somewhat more democratic than, you know, when there's three broadcast networks and a couple of newspapers that control everything. You, you can get a lot of interesting perspectives that you can't get any other place. So I'm despite Elon Musk's purchase, I'm, I'm hoping it will survive. But I think, you know, that's very much uh, up in the air, whether it just sort of becomes a cesspool, whether there's not enough money to keep it maintained. Well, we're just going to have to see. Yeah. Uh, Judd, I want to talk to you about uh, today's edition of the newsletter where you talk about how Republicans are really aggressively trying to invalidate ballots, especially in swing states. We need to take a real quick break. I'm talking to Judd Legum. The newsletter is popular information. I know that you get overwhelmed with sources of information, but honestly, this one should be on your top five. Uh, And you should read it every day. We'll be back with more after this. You're listening to The Joan Esposito Show. Live, local, and progressive. Brought to you by Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties since 1953. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm very pleased to be joined by Judd Legum. He does a newsletter called Popular Information. He is really great at taking 
one issue. It's not like an aggregate site. They'll take one issue and do a deep dive into it so that by the time you finish reading it, you really feel like you have a much better understanding of what is going on. Um, Part of the one of the most recent issues is talking about Republican efforts, as we've seen across the country, They feel they can't win fair and square, so they're trying to figure out ways to invalidate voters and invalidate votes. Judd uses what is going on in Pennsylvania as an illustration of of this. Uh, Judd, could you explain uh, to my listeners exactly uh, what is going on in Pennsylvania, what you see? Yeah, well, Pennsylvania, like a lot of states, in, in, in Pennsylvania's case, it actually predated the pandemic. They switched over and said, you don't need an excuse anymore. If you want to vote by mail, you can vote by mail. Um, To get an absentee ballot or mail-in ballot in Pennsylvania, you've got to prove that you're a registered voter, you're qualified, you you submit an application, they review it, make sure that you're all uh, properly registered, your information checks out, and they send you the ballot. Uh, There's a number of requirements for the ballot. You've got to fill it out. You've got to sign it. You've got to return it on time. One of the requirements also, um, as, a, as, a, as a technical requirement, is to, on the outer envelope, there's a couple of envelopes involved because there's a security envelope, inner envelope, outer envelope, the one that actually is sent, put in the Dropbox, sent to the mail. In addition to signing it, you have to hand write the date. Now, that date is not really important to figuring out if you're eligible because you are, that's already been determined. And it's actually not even important to figure out if you filled it out on time because the actual date that matters is when they receive it at the local board of elections. So in Pennsylvania, you've got to get it in by 8 p.m. today. So what's going on is that basically there are many thousands of ballots, at least 7,000, maybe more, of voters who were who by all accounts were eligible to vote filled out their ballot completely appropriately, signed it in every way, except they failed to hand write in a date. And so the Republicans have sued to prevent those votes from being being counted. Uh, And the Pennsylvania um, Supreme Court uh, considered it, and they actually split down the middle. There's usually seven, but the chief justice died in October. So they split three to three. Uh, three people said throwing out these votes violates uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because it, which says that you can't exclude votes for you know immaterial technicalities, which is what uh, this, this appears to be. Three other members of that court's said they disagreed that the law is the law. It's got to be filled out. Um, But even though they couldn't reach a consensus, they did say you can't count these votes. Uh, And right now they've just been uh, they haven't been discarded, but they're being segregated and not included in the count as of now. It is just jaw dropping to me, the obvious lengths that this new improved far-right Republican Party will go to to skew the vote their way. It, to me, it's as much a public admission of, you know, we really can't win 
we can't win playing fair and square. We we know we can't win based on our policies. So we're going to we're going to go to court. We're going to try to get mal- mail-in ballots thrown out. We're going to try to get them set aside. If we have uh, our, the state legislature, we're going to try to close polling places or reduce hours or days. And yet, and yet, Judd, there are so many people who still call themselves Republican who either don't really see what's happening or don't seem to care about it. What do you? How do you? How do you make sense of that? It's it's something that's been that's that slowly over time you've had to come to accept, but there just isn't a big part of the Republican Party. There's a couple of folks, you know, literally like a handful who say, hey, we have to prioritize democracy and the democratic process. And we disagree with you on policy issues, but hey, votes should count. We shouldn't spread conspiracy theories about the vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and by the way, this is something that, that comes that, you, that comes up all the time. You know, I remember when uh, John Kerry lost and there were all sorts of people saying, oh, look into this, look into that. Um, you know, the, the difference is, is that you've had a whole party kind of coalesce around it. And obviously Trump, who's made it his his calling card, especially since uh, since 2020. Uh, but, you know, I, I just think it's it's a huge it's a huge threat you know, to the future of the whole Democratic process. You know, one of the things I got into a little bit of the newsletter, but really struck me was that, you know, not only are they trying to exclude these ballots, but, and this has been less successful, the Republican Party in different counties actually sued to try to prevent the local election boards, not from counting the votes, but from reaching out to the people who submitted these ballots without the handwritten date and say, hey, could you come in and cure this defect? You know, come in and, you know, write down the date at which you did this so that it will comply with it. They tried to prevent them even from doing that. And so I think then it becomes, you know, when you get to that point, it becomes clear that this isn't about, you know, this isn't some sort of misguided thing to try to comply with the law. This is really about a very aggressive effort to, you know, eliminate uh, votes. And, you know, that's something that I think is is really disturbing. It is very disturbing. Another thing that I've seen, particularly this election cycle, and I've been watching elections for a very long time, the Republican candidates for high office that seem so utterly and unbelievably unqualified. I'm thinking Dr. Oz. I'm thinking Herschel Walker. And yet we know all the reporting. Oh, Pennsylvania is going to be close uh, Georgia is going to be close. And I don't sometimes feel like I know this world I'm living in anymore. Judd, I, I, I really don't. I don't understand how somebody listens to a Herschel Walker, knows his history and says, yeah, you know what? That's the guy for me. Do you have any insight there? Well, I just feel like in the way politics is going, um, there's the the actual candidate. It's it's it, the, you know his or his or herself is becoming less and less important. Now, obviously, you can have an extremely qualified or you know dynamic candidate that can that can change the calculus and you know do better than than you thought. Or you know you can go the other way and just pick somebody who's who's totally out of step. You know, in Maryland, mm-hmm. Maryland yeah. had a had a Republican governor 
Um, so it's po- even though it's a Democratic state, it's possible for Republicans to win. But, you know, they nominated some person who's just out of step. You know, Dan Cox, he's just out of step for the state. You know, the, the, it's, it's not going to work. So I don't it looks like he's probably going to lose. But for the most part, the candidates themselves don't matter that much anymore because it's more about uh, kind of are you on the in group or, or the out group? The people have been successful in primaries by aligning themselves very strongly with Trump, you know, and then once you get to the general, uh, even people who aren't enthusiastic about Trump, they lined up behind the candidate. I think Arizona actually is a perfect example because Doug Ducey, who's the current governor of Arizona, also the chairperson of the Republican Governor Association, he was actually warning throughout the whole primary about Carrie Lake. She's unqualified. She's spreading lies. She's not going to be a good governor for Arizona. Okay. That mm-hmm. was interesting that he would stand up for that. But then Carrie Lake won the primary, really on the strength of Trump's endorsement, probably more than any candidate in the whole country, really pushing the lie about the 2020 election as the center of her brand. Uh, then Doug Ducey not only endorses her, but as chairman of the uh, the Republican Governors Association, has funneled twelve, thirteen million dollars into that race, essentially running her. Only very recently did did her own campaign even get ads on the air. Essentially becoming that campaign and making her very competitive. I mean, she could win tonight, and so I think that's a good example about what's happening. It's a combination of a Republican base that really is just looking for signals from Trump and then a Republican establishment who seems to know better than to that. It seems to realize that these folks are not good to have in positions of power. But when push comes to shove, will continue to facilitate their campaigns, fund their campaigns and, and push their um, candidacies forward. Yeah. Um, do you have any doubt that Donald Trump is going to declare himself a candidate for president? It seems I, I, I hate to make any predictions with Trump because I think he sometimes, you know, he, he may be trying to kind of get people thinking that and then go the other way. So I, I do have some doubts. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure. But, yeah, I mean, I think signs point to the fact that he's running again. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't think it's a slam dunk for him to even win the nomination again this time. You know, I think there's he has a lot more formidable challenges uh, than he did. Well, a lot of people think that if he throws his hat in the ring, Ron DeSantis will will hang back, that Ron DeSantis won't want to go toe to toe with him. So that is I've heard from what I've read, people say the case that he then he might be, have a better chance, I think. If, if that's the case, then he might have a better chance. Because I think DeSantis is probably his, his, his biggest competition because he really plays it in the same, in the same lane, which is the biggest lane in the Republican yeah. Party right now. But, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Yes. It will, be, uh, it will be interesting. It will be interesting. Judd, thank you for the work you do. Um, as I've said, I find your newsletter... Uh, so informative. And then to see the fact that corporate America is also paying attention and sometimes changing their ways based on what you write 
is really gratifying for me as a reader, and it must be very gratifying for you as um, the founder of Popular Information. Thank you so much for joining us to talk today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Uh, Judd Legum, Popular Information, subscribe today. And, you know, you can follow him on Twitter for the at least the near future. <laughs> We're going to take a break for news and be back with much more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. He'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. A name that got a lot of attention in Chicago was Kristen Zeman. She was the Aurora police chief when there was a mass shooting there. And she was universally praised for how how she and her police department handled that. Aurora, not the biggest town in uh, in any state, but they really were really cited as an example for how these kinds of things can be managed. Uh, she was a 30-year police veteran. And uh, she is no longer in Aurora, but she is going to be back in town. She's going to be speaking at uh, Benedictine University. That is tomorrow. And uh, we asked her if she would join us to talk about her career and policing. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I just heard on your news that someone won the lottery in California, so I had to <laughs> stop uh, fantasizing about how I was going to spend all that money. Oh, you know, my partner and I, we already had it worked out exactly um, how we were going to split the money, you know, what we were going to do uh, with the kids. And, you know, um, we had a plan. We had a plan. And I... Yeah. When he told me that there was a winner in California, I got to say I was I was stunned. I was so every time I buy a ticket, I am so sure that I am going to be the winner that, you know, it is always just stunning to me when I do not win this. But, you know, I know know. I'm going to be there for the next one. I'm definitely going to be there for the next one. One of one of the many newsletters that I get that halfway through the newsletter, they said, oh, we just heard that somebody in California um, won the lottery. So I guess we'll finish this newsletter. Keep reading. I hear you. That's so great. That's mm-hmm. so great. But did you and your partner actually get into a disagreement about how you're going to spend the money? Because that's what happened with me and my partner. And we finally stopped and started laughing. And we said, we are arguing over what we're going to do with money that we uh, are not going to get. So that was funny. Well, well, here's here's a little hint. Um, you know, after you've reduced the amount from the one because you take it as a lump, you get less than half and then you take off. Um, the 30 or 40 percent that you have to pay taxes and then whatever's left, we split 50 50 so that we don't have to make judgments on what the other person's doing with the money. That's that was our solution. Our solution was um, was there's no way we could make these decisions together. <laughs> 
Good problem solving. All right. Sorry. Yeah. Down that road. I digress. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, when you uh, speak at Benedictine University tomorrow, what is it that you're going to be talking about? So Benedictine, you know, as you know, obviously an educational institution comprised of students who are trying to figure out their path in life. Of course, it is open to the public, but that is my focus is to talk about my career path and, you know, the decision that I made to go into law enforcement and, you know, the successes and failures and really to... I, I really want to guide the conversation where they want it to go. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's just going to give, you know, my history, my background. And, and again, a lot of the lessons that I have learned through failing and what I hope is failing forward and, and some of the things that I'd love to impart upon them so they don't make the same mistakes and, you know, can learn and apply it to their own lives. Sadly, you came to a lot of people's attention when there was a mass shooting in Aurora. Can you walk us through what that day was like for you? Oh, well, I can tell you it was the worst day of my professional life. But let me back up even further and, and say that, you know, and this is what the mindset and what I want people to start thinking about uh, or continue to thinking about is that we sat down several years before that, you know, myself and my command staff, and, and I went to my training division. I went to my, uh, to my team and I said, hey, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen in our city? You know, we are charged with the caring and keeping of our residents and those who live here and work here and play here. And I said, what is the thing that could come here, you know, and are we prepared? And so we had to sit down and brainstorm, you know, what that could be. And one of those things was a mass shooting. And I give all of the credit to my training team and the SWAT lieutenant that said, listen, we're not where we should be. We need more training. We need more equipment. And so we started a process of getting ready. And that preparation process is what brought us to that day where those officers performed uh, truly remarkably. I mean, and so it was 124 in the afternoon on February 15th, 2019. And I was sitting in my office uh, like any other Friday uh, talking about very high level policey stuff and that I was talking to a commander about a, uh, a, a lemon caper recipe that he had just used on his fish the night before. Mm. So very high level police stuff. Um, and then it was just this surreal moment. Uh, commander Cross, who is now the chief, ran into our office, into my office and said, uh, are you listening to the radio? We have an active shooter. And those words just hung in that office for, it felt like forever, but it was just enough to exchange the look between the three of us to say, okay, this is real. And then it's like something, uh, just a switch just flipped. And we just you know went to the scene. Our officers were already there. They were already engaging in the gunfire. And while I was en route to the scene, I heard the first officer, you know, declare his partner just said, you know, he's been shot. And one after another, I heard officers getting shot and they were getting shot in pursuit of stopping the shooter at the Pratt manufacturing plant. And none of them relented. They continued on until, you know, and that shooter then went and hid in the warehouse. And it was a 90 minute search that uh, the team, along with many other jurisdictions that also get credit for 
coming in to help us. But, um, you know, that encapsulizes it in the, in the, in the fastest way I can is that after 90 minutes, uh, the shooter opened fire on the first uh, SWAT team that went in and they returned fire, eventually uh, killing him. But uh, in the process, five beautiful human beings were killed, uh, five people who worked for the Pratt manufacturing plant and five of my officers were shot. So, yeah, to say it's the worst day is an understatement. What went through your mind as you, and I know that you weren't there, you weren't there certainly in any official capacity, but as just a human being watching the events in Uvalde, Texas, what went so wrong there? Well, you know, I I have to, full disclosure, I am on the team uh, for the Department of Justice that is uh, you know, doing the review of, of Uvalde. So I have to wait until we are done with our report. But what I will say is that the open source and for the things that you have seen, you know, you're drawing your own conclusions. Uh, and that's exactly what we're trying to uncover. You know, it, obviously very different scenario from, you know, the one I'm very intimate with. And of course, the one uh, I was watching from afar, uh, very different response. And we're trying to determine what happened and the goal of, of my team with the DOJ is is to make sure that going forward, law enforcement has the skills, the tools, the leadership um, and the decisiveness, uh, you know, to to know how to perform in an active shooter or any kind of mass violence scenario. Not that there wasn't loss of life and tragedy, but did things go Better than they might have in Aurora because you ahead of time sat down and said, you know, what do we need to train for? What do we need to prepare for? Did that preparation and training make a difference that day? There is arguably uh, no doubt whatsoever in my mind. Um, I fully uh, uh, embrace the idea that you do not rise to the level of expectation. You fall to the level of your training. And because our training division had put our officers uh, through scenario-based training, and when I say scenario-based, I want to emphasize scenario-based. It's not enough, you know, classroom to, you know, sit and talk about it. You have to put officers through scenario-based experiential training so that they feel the fear and they move through it in a controlled environment so that when the defecation hits the oscillation, that they know exactly how to perform because they play like they practice. I want to uh, talk about your new book and some ideas that you have about how policing can be better. I'm talking to Kristen Zeman, former police chief of Aurora, Illinois. She is speaking tomorrow at Benedictine University. She also has a new book out called Reimagining Blue. We're going to continue to talk to her about next-gen policing right after this. Think Theory Radio. We enter this world of hyper-reality. In case you didn't know, hyper-reality is the inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality, especially in technologically advanced societies. The action of hyper-reality is to desire reality in an attempt to achieve the desire to fabricate a false reality that is to be consumed as real. Think Theory Radio with Damien Perdue. Saturdays at 6 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. I am joined by Kristen Zeman, who is a name, that's a name you might recognize. She was the police chief in Aurora, Illinois, when they dealt with a terrible mass shooting incident. She's actually written a book called Reimagining Blue. And that's one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about, Kristen. How do we reimagine uh, policing? I know that there was just a report out today that was sort of taking Chicago to task that um, with the new budget that's coming out and, you know, a, a watchdog agency was looking at the way the money was spent and they were saying, you know, this doesn't appear to be data driven allocation of resources. This doesn't appear to be data driven, poli- data driven policing. Is that what we need to do to police better going forward is look at the data, figure out where to spend the money and allocate the resources? Well, sure. That's one facet of a complex, multifaceted issue, right? And so, you know, I I don't proclaim to solve all the problems. What I can do is give you a lens of, you know, a woman who went into law enforcement, you know, and and I, I, I talk about this all the time is at the beginning of my career, I entered it uh, when the Rodney King incident happened. You know, that was right when I started in my police department and, you know, civil unrest you know, took hold across the nation. I, I ended my career, you know, the bookend was the murder of George Floyd, where civil unrest took hold across the nation. And if you look at those two bookends, you, you would say, perhaps, wow, there's been absolutely no progress in policing. But I have seen the progress with my own eyes, and I know that it's happened. And so my book takes a look at the things that we we do well, because when we are at our best, um, we're remarkable. But when we are at our worst, then, you know, it it truly becomes a ripple effect. And that trust that becomes eroded uh, truly dissolves what what can be a problem solving you know initiative between the public and our police so one of them is looking at data for sure i mean the way that we policed in aurora the second largest city in the state of illinois is by looking at data you you know that i call them the pulling levers theory is that you know you look at who is committing the crime and where the crimes are being committed they're called you know hot people and hot locations and then you allocate resources um you know for enforcement there and if you go into any community, even the ones with the, the highest crime rates, talk to the neighbors there. That's what they want. They don't want to, to abolish or defund the police. They want fair, impartial policing that stops those who are wreaking havoc. So absolutely, data is just one way. Uh, training is another. You know, when you look at uh some of the incidents that have happened just take a handful across the nation of, you know, where one officer tarnishes a badge. I will tell you that it's either culture related or training related. And so we have to delve into culture. And so I try to talk a little bit about uh, all of these issues in my book and what it might look like. And I call balls and strikes. Uh, and and truly call to task those officers who uh, really believe that uh, where we have that blind loyalty, you know, where where cops can do no wrong. But I also call to task those people who think that cops do everything wrong 
And, you know, my takeaway is that violence, no matter whose hands is inflicting it, you know, is 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 abhorrent and that we have to stop that. Uh, but so the book really looks at a lot of different ways, but one of them is humanizing one another. You know, when we lean into each other, it's hard to hate. And I think that's uh, this place and time we're at is this divisiveness of hatred. And, and we've got to start there is having co- conversations. You say humanizing. Uh, isn't that, you know, we, t- we hear a lot about community policing and particularly even walking a beat so that, you know, you're on a, a sort of a one-to-one human level with the people in the neighborhood and that that is how trust is built. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about when you talk about humanizing the process? Absolutely. I am a proponent. You know, I call them word salads. You've got procedural justice, community policing, you know, fair and impartial policing. And those are all word salads that, that just mean let's treat each other with human dignity and respect. And you cannot have uh, crime go down without the community helping us, uh, all of us, uh, you know, no matter what jurisdiction we work, because, you know, we are are only a small percentage covering, you know, a lot of, of a big population, uh, you know, a lot of square miles. And so we rely on our community to tell us, hey, here are the people who are committing the crimes and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and coming forward as witnesses. But people won't do that if they don't trust the police. So getting right. back to basics, and that's, that's one thing that we talked about in our department every recruit class, and this has been the culture permeating, is drop the mirrored sunglasses and attitude and and let's be human and show just because we wear a uniform does not mean that we don't have the same fears, you know, and and that that we can't show compassion or, God forbid, vulnerability in doing our job. And I have found the best, most successful police officers are ones that exhibit that humanism. And so more of that, please. What about technology? I mean, in Chicago, there's talk about, you know, um, you know, because police are warned off from a lot of high speed chases where people might get hurt. I'm using more technology like drones to follow the bad guys. I mean, if we if we had enough drones, I mean, couldn't we couldn't we follow all the bad people to wherever it is they end up and then arrest them there again? Another tool. You are talking to the biggest technology nerd who is an early adopter. And I firmly believe that when we can bring more technology, when we can put things in place of people, then we can absolutely uh, start, you know, solving some of these crimes or at least stopping, you know, some of the people, again, wreaking havoc on communities. Drones are one of them. You know, we introduced drones pretty early on, but I've seen departments that are um, have optimized drone use where a drone is dispatched. Um, I work very closely with uh, the Axon company uh, that does body cams and tasers, and, you know, they're getting into that space as well. And they've got some great uh, organizations that deploy drones for the exact reason. I'm all about, um, you know, even in our mass shooting, uh, as I mentioned, 90 minutes to find the shooter. Um, had we have had a drone that flown in 
inside, uh, which the department now has. Uh, but that would have, uh, you know, found that shooter immediately. And maybe even if a taser was attached to a drone, which is a new prototype and something mm. that, you know, people are, are talking about, um, you know, where you can stop someone from 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 hurting others. And so um, anytime you can use technology, you know, and, you know, even cameras. And I know that's a very controversial topic, but, you know, just where you can, you know, determine who's committing the crimes, all of these things, again, um, but they are no substitute for, again, you know, good, you know, (laughs) between the community, good relationships and and the police. Mm -hmm. And so you have to overlay that on top. There is not one, one, you know, solve in that is going to, you know, or one issue, one thing that's going to solve this problem. It's an overlay of many things put together. While we're on the subject of technology, uh, ShotSpotter has been controversial. It has in Chicago. It has people who believe in it. The matter of fact, it, the contract was just renewed. And yet there are people who feel that um, it does a disservice that a lot of times it records sounds that aren't shots. And because it thinks that they're shots, it sends cops to the area that are full of adrenaline, thinking that they're going into some kind of active shooter situation and that that could lead to disaster. Do you have any uh, feeling one way or the other for ShotSpotter? Yeah, I do. You know, when we first looked at introducing it in our department, the technology hadn't been perfected and it most certainly isn't perfect like any human or any technology. You know, it's not perfect, but uh, we recently adopted, and I, I keep saying we, even though I'm retired, because I will always be part of the Aurora <laughs> Police Department, uh, but it's, you know, adopted because the technology is even better and more refined. And so that's part of what I'm talking about. So am I a proponent? Absolutely. Because we want to know, as I mentioned, hot spots, hot people. So where are these crimes happening? You know, and if someone is out there firing, you know, a, a weapon, you know, and, and that technology can be refined so that it picks up gunfire. Absolutely. Now, what you had just mentioned is a real possibility, that being fireworks or something other, another loud noise. But then that's where a police officer's expertise, and that's where I fall back on training, is that mm-hmm. that officer has to be open to the, you know, the possibility that that wasn't, uh, you know, a, a firearm or a person with a firearm, but that's where that's where the training comes in is then they can calm themselves down and say, okay, what am I seeing? And then you you when an officer goes in, you know, it is their situational awareness. And because they have been trained in this exact scenario many times over and over, you know, now they can deduct what am I looking at here and then mm-hmm. act accordingly. There's um, I know we don't have a lot of time left. There's also been talk. I guess New York does this of, you know, because we've had so many uh, police retire and leave the force of offering um, reinstatement to retired officers, especially detectives to help clear murders. Do you think that's a good idea? I, I do. I mean, I do believe that, you know, policing you know, is I think we're in a crisis right now of, of retention and, you know, trying to recruit officers. And it's for obvious reasons. I mean, if you, you know, just again, look at, you know, the divisiveness and what people think about the police, you know, but I also know that pendulum will shift. And so I mm-hmm. guess what I'll, I'll start is saying that what we need are really good people 
that are coming into our profession. You know, again, compassionate problem solvers, you know, that want to to see their community, you know, at peace. So let's start there and let's recruit people that the kind of police officers that we want in our neighborhoods, right? But then, yeah, I mean, in our department, we actually uh, hired part-time uh, detectives who had retired to, you know, to, to work on, on background checks and things of that nature. So if any time you can utilize, you know, the expertise of anyone, to me, you know, retirement certainly doesn't mean that you've, you've lost your skills that, you know, of course. And so if we can leverage a, a lot of the, the training and expertise that we have already out there, why wouldn't we? And again, there's another, you know, solution to a multi-layered problem, you know, one of many solutions that we could look at. Thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, Kristen Zeman, her new book is Reimagining Blue, and she will be speaking tomorrow, November 9th, at Benedictine University. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, it's been a terrific, Kristen. Thank you so much, Joan. Go buy a lottery ticket for the next one. <laughs> I will. Um, we are going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Tune into the Tom Hartman Radio Program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Joan Esposito Show, live, local, and progressive. Brought to you by Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties since 1953. Getting what is probably one of their very last endorsements since uh, the owner of the Chicago Tribune has declared that uh, they that the Trib and all the other newspapers they own will no longer be making endorsements going forward. Um, but somehow the Trib seems to have snuck in under the wire. And even though a lot of people consider the Tribune kind of a Republican leaning paper, they have endorsed State Representative LaShawn Ford in the 8th District. LaShawn joins us now. Congratulations. Thank you. I, You know what? I wear that um, as a badge of honor. Anytime you could um, get an endorsement of a newspaper that has readers and people that follow them, you know, I think that that's great. Yeah. And I yeah. thank them for that endorsement. I, I did the uh, questionnaires, went through the process, and... Um, came out on top of over a Republican that um, that is running in this election. Did they give you any indication? Because I saw the endorsement, but I didn't like read. Sometimes with an endorsement, they'll do a whole article about why. Did uh, anybody from the editorial board or at the Tribune in general give you any idea what it was about you that they particularly liked? Not that well, you're not you completely know, <laughs> and totally likable in every way. Well, the endorsement was pretty, um, I think, uh, you know, the endorsement didn't talk about everything that I've done as a legislator, everything that I stand for and um, my political uh, philosophy. But it did say that they endorsed me because I pretty much share many of their views and think like them. And so. I think that that's um, a balanced approach as a legislator because everyone knows that I'm a Democrat and I have Democratic views. But for a Republican paper to also um, endorse me, stating that I have um, I share their um, views and their positions is pretty good. Yeah, I, I definitely think so too. 
Um, I know that I don't believe you guys are going to be back in Springfield until what? Isn't there a, a week in January where you do a veto nope. session? You know, Joan, we're going to be back next Tuesday on the 15th for um, veto session. And, oh, I didn't realize uh, there was a November that, yeah. veto session as well. Yeah, the, the lame duck is going to be in January. And so we will um, have on schedule right now to be back in um, Springfield on the 15th. And so oh. that's where we're going to work um, as we um, express to the voters um, before January um, 1, when the Safety Act kicks in, we're going to make some adjustments to that. That's our promise to the voters that uh, we are going to work with stakeholders. We're going to work with um, in a bipartisan way and um, in both chambers and with the governor and um, make sure that we clarify language in the Safety Act. So our schedule is... Um, November 15th, 16th, and 17th as of now. Then we return on the 29th and the 30th. And one day to report for veto session is December 1st. And then lame duck. Okay. So what kinds of... Governor Pritzker mentioned this while he was campaigning, that there were tweaks, uh, not major changes, but small changes that he wanted to see with the Safety Act. Can you give us an indication of, of what he's talking about and what you plan to do? Yeah. You know, there were some um, areas of the Safety Act that law enforcement and judges and stakeholders and even the community um, are not clear on the intent of um, the law as is written. And so there would be some clarifications as to um, what we intend the law to mean as relates to um, trespassing on public and private properties. That's a major one that we have to um, pay attention to. Um, And I've talked to my chiefs of police and mayors and North Riverside, LaGrange, LaGrange Park, and, and the Forest Park and other towns. And that is a major concern where they fear that if a person is on a um, private property that they could only ticket the individual when um, called by the homeowner. And so Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that the um, intent of the law is that a person can be removed from a private property, whether or not the person appears to be a threat to um, the resident or not. And so that, that language is not as clear. And so we will make that clear. There's also language that we, we're going to look at as it relates to electronic monitoring to make sure that uh, people uh, and and Tom Dart and other um, sheriffs across the um, state understand when a person is a flight risk or a or or what you call an escape person from home monitoring, and uh, we want to make sure that it's clear as to whether or not a person should be uh, apprehended because they. Um, are not um, they're not at the home where they should be or they have been unfounded for a certain number of hours. So we're going to make sure that that is clear for um, mm-hmm. for the police and sheriffs across the state. There, are, I know that um, 
some uh, states' attorneys in Illinois um, have filed suit to try to block the Safety Act from uh, going into effect. Um, they're they're saying, at, at least in part, they're saying it's unconstitutional. I think that there is a lot of confusion about this because I was, oh, a month or two ago, I was talking to a judge I know, and they were saying, well, here's what I don't like about it, that judges can't um, hold somebody that they think is a risk. And I was like, well, well wait a minute, that's not my understanding. And they were like, well, f- the judges can't do it on their own prosecutors have to first recommend that the person be held and then the judge can decide. So I talked to some of the people who actually had been instrumental in writing the act and they were like, no, no, that's not what it says at all. Judges don't need anybody's permission to do this. So it seems to me that there needs to be an education program or or at least that the information that's been filing down to the rank and file uh, seems to be confused uh, at best. Anything that that Springfield can do to counteract that? Yeah, and that's a part of making tweaks to the language because you know if 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 there is a little uncertainty in the way the language is written, then we should do better. And so judges are asking for clarity. And I think that when you write public policy, you should be as clear in the intent as possible so that there is no gray area. And so I think that this is very healthy for um, public policy making because this has come up before it goes into effect. And I want to give everyone credit that um, that come out about things that they're not clear about, because the last thing we need is injustice in a situation where we were seeking more justice in society. You know, those are called unintended consequences. So everyone is doing a good job by reading the legislation and and calling out the fact that there are some things that's unclear and therefore we are make it right. We are talking with LaShawn Ford, who is the state representative representing the 8th District here in Illinois. We're going to take a break and continue our conversation right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am happy to be joined by State Representative LaShawn Ford. He uh, represents the 8th District in Illinois. He has been endorsed by the Chicago Tribune, which is kind of an interesting endorsement to get, but one that um, everyone should be really proud of. LaShawn, as you look at these elections, I mean, for the most part, we know Illinois is a blue state and Democrats do very well here. But are you concerned about things like um, the Supreme Court justice races that are on the ballot in the second district and the third district in Illinois? You know, I am not so concerned, but I, I do believe that um, the people of Illinois, I trust the voters that they're going to um, vote for 
um, who they want to to serve at the Supreme Court. Of course, you know, it's selfish of me to uh, say that I want my candidate to win. Of course, that's what I want. I believe that the Democrats would make the best choice for the Supreme Court to uphold justice. Um, but if the voters in Illinois decide to go the other way, then we have to um, still live in Illinois and make it a great place. So, you know, I'm not going to be worried about it. Um, I think that um, there are some things at risk if if the course shifts, um, but it, it won't be the end of the world. We have mm-hmm. a lot of work to do to protect um, the people right now in my um, branch of government. I have been surprised this election season by the how do I how do I put this and not uh, and not get uh, too derogatory here? Um, I have been surprised by some of the Republican candidates who have been run by their party for offices like governor and senator, people who I think even in the Republican Party of 20, 30 years ago, would have been considered so unqualified that they literally would not have been allowed into the door of a Republican committee meeting. And yet now we see these folks on the ballot. What do you think about what you see at the national level? Oh, you know, it is really, it really sets candidates apart. And what we see when we see extreme uh, candidates that at one point would not have been allowed in the room, that too could have been un-American. And it probably really set the stage for people that had so much buildup of animosity towards government to get them to this point. These people, um, I would say, they they have been shut out for a long time. And I'm not defending them. I think that what we have to do in in government is invite everyone to the table before it boils over to a point of hate and violence. You know, I'm a teacher by profession, and people I know in the classroom, if a student is ignored, they're going to get attention one way or the other. It's Mm -hmm. the same in society. So I think that Somehow, as adults, we look for children to always take the smart approach and to look for compromise and to be um, accepting of other people. I think adults have to take the lessons that we talk to children about and recognize that everyone is not going to be who we want them to be, how we want them to be, walk the way we want them to walk, and figure out a way to work with them. If we do that, I think that we could tamper down some of the um, hate that's going on in this country. Well, I was talking, oh, quite a while ago to uh, Jonathan Carroll, and he said that one of his concerns was that Republicans who he had been able to work with in a bipartisan way in Springfield all seemed to be losing their primaries to much more far-right, much more radical alt-right Republicans. And he was concerned, you know, he said, you know, I obviously I don't know what it's going to be like when we get there, but I'm concerned that these people and obviously we had different views on things, but at least on some issues, we were able to work together. And he said, I don't know. 
um, if that's going to be possible going forward. What do you think about the legislature and going forward in a bipartisan manner? Well, there are some Democrats that, um, you know, Democrats are extreme to the points that we fight for justice and we do everything that we feel is equal um, under the eyes of the law. And um, there are some extreme, um, I'm proud to say I'm an extreme Democrat. And (laughs) people could say that they are extreme Republicans. You got to respect that. You got to respect it. And I do believe that when you get to the room that you find the common ground and you figure out how you're going to work together and make things work. Look, the more extreme they are, the less of them there are. Therefore, they will be isolated because Uh they want to be in the business of getting things done for the people of Illinois, or they just want to be extreme and they want to be reckless and they want to be obstructionist. So the majority of the people in Springfield, Democrats and Republicans, want to work together. So if the extremists that are not extreme to the point of working together come, then they will be isolated. And we will still get things done for people in Illinois. We have a caller, uh, Dave from Hoffman Estates, who wants to join our conversation Hey, Dave, you're on with me and uh, State Representative LaShawn Ford. Go ahead. Hey, John. And, um, originally, I was going to mention to you about, like, when the Republicans are t- talking about putting, you know, all of the these Democrats in jail and prison and that, they don't get the same uh, breaks that uh, the Steve Bannons and that get and, the, uh, <laughs> and Trump, where they can keep extending, 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 and... And then secondly, when they're talking about impeaching President Biden, what does that mean? They just put in uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as president, (laughs) right? Well, I don't think that they're going to have the votes to remove anybody from office. Um, and But I do think that, I mean, we've heard from the more extreme parts of the party that that basically just simply t- uh, f- seeking revenge that they would go through the impeachment process. But I think I think it would end up being I mean, because they can't even say, well, why would you impeach Biden? Well, we'll find something. We'll find something. It's it's just this kind of a tit for tat um, going on when uh, your last guest was on. It got me to thinking that uh, kind of the uh, small world, six degree of separation is um, the the officer you know, that got shot in the knee. Well, his late now late father he used to be part of the, the McDonald's group that hang out with. And oh wow! First name his name is John, and then the other half of that was uh, my former boss's brother was part of the ATF. And they happened to just be at that Aurora because uh, they liked, you know, that they, I guess it had a very good uh, firing range. Wow. And they happened to hear it on the radio about that there was an active shooter going on. And they said, where is it? And they said, here, Aurora. Thank you for uh, thank you for that, Dave. Uh, LaShawn, I was just talking to Kristen Zeman, who, as you know, of course, was a former police chief in Aurora when they had their mass shooting there. And um, I didn't realize this, but she's apparently on the DOJ panel that is investigating what happened in Uvalde, Texas. And um, and she said that while she couldn't speak 
on the record until they released their report that kind of a lot of what we had seen in the reporting about the failures was uh, was probably what was uh, going to be talked about in that report. Crime, you know, we've you talked about how you're going to tweak the Safety Act. Crime is always uh, something that um, is on people's minds. <coughs> Excuse me. Other than the Safety Act, any ideas of any bills to make Illinois a safer place? Yeah, you know, I think that's a perfect um, question because I think when you think about today being Election Day, today is a very important day. But the most important day is the day after. All the people that took the time to stand in line to vote, they should be prepared to give their demands to the politicians and be willing to stand strong and hard to see their demands through and to build coalitions so that their um, demands are followed through on. So tomorrow, once the people win, it's time to build alliances with those politicians that you voted in so that we can mm-hmm. pass tougher laws so that our communities could be safer, so that the police could have the resources that they need, so that our schools would be um, equipped with the resources that they need. The day after the election is key. And so I'm chairing with uh, Representative Hurley, the um, Public Safety um, Task Force, and we're going to be putting together legislation to make sure that our schools are safer. So we're going to have a hearing um, coming up in the next week or so about safety in schools and making sure that we provide the funding to our public schools to have safe buildings. That's you know, that kind of planning, I wish it weren't necessary, but I'm glad that somebody's thinking about it and planning to do it. Um, by the way, the rumors are hot and heavy that uh, in a couple of days, probably possibly on the 10th, uh, Chewy Garcia is going to throw his hat in the ring uh, to be another uh, contender for Lori Lightfoot's job. Do you have any um, any inside information you can share with us on that? You know, talking to um, Chewy, I think Chewy is pretty excited about uh, a pathway to um, becoming the next mayor of the city of Chicago. And so um, we shall see uh, what happens. I'm I'm very happy to see that um, Chewy uh, took very seriously his um, responsibility as a congressperson and did not announce that he was running for mayor during the um, election that's most important to this country, and that is making sure that we maintain our uh, majority in the House and Senate and Congress. So um, focusing on his job at hand and um, possibly running for mayor um, could be a, a good thing for Chuy Garcia. So as soon as we get the midterms wrapped up, we get to take a couple of breaths, and then we're in it for the first round of uh, the mayoral election. Are you ready? Absolutely. I'm ready. Commercials could be coming. They're February 28th, which is actually my birthday. That's the day of the election. And if no candidate receives 50% plus one, there would be a runoff between two um, candidates that uh, that make it on the ballot um, for the February 28th election. I expect a runoff. I think so, too. 
I with you know, I mean, just simply when you look at the numbers, I mean, when you get so many people who are on the ballot, assuming, of course, everybody gets their signatures, uh, it's really even, you know, even with the power of the incumbency, I think getting 50 percent plus one is going to be a tall ask. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the signatures, the amount needed to be on the ballot for the mayor of the city of Chicago is more than you need for governor. And <laughs> I've tried to reduce that. Uh, right now, you need 12,500 signatures to run for the mayor of the city of Chicago, and you need only need 5,000 signatures to run statewide for a statewide office. So we will continue to push that legislation so that we can make it possible for us to have um, uh, fewer uh, responsibilities for the people at the Board of Elections. Because just think about it. If you have 10 people in an election for the city of Chicago, the Board of Election, when it comes time to validating those signatures, it's just going to be a burden on them and a burden on taxpayers. And we shouldn't do that to that um, system. Well, and Shia Kapos in Illinois Playbook said, yes, the requirement is 12,500, but most people figure, you know, because of duplicates or problems with addresses or, or whatnot, she said that realistically the minimum anybody should get is 40,000 signatures. Now there's a tall order. It is a tall order. Let me tell you, I, when I ran for mayor last time, four years, almost four years ago, I turned in almost 100,000 signatures, and they challenged my signatures, and we had to go through all of them. And Ugh. so that is so even with a almost 100,000, you're still going to get a challenge. So and um, it was a litigation. So I think that it's going to be very important that um, we um, fix our election code and reduce the numbers needed for the system. Sean, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, please join me anytime that you have a, a, a bill you want to talk about, or heck, if heck, even if you've got a half hour with nothing to do, just let me know. I would, know. Love, to. I would <laughs> okay. love to come back and talk about the um, the problems that we're seeing with um, with opioids and fentanyl. So I look forward to talking with you. Excellent, excellent. We'll get Thank that you. on the books. Thank you. Right. you. Bye bye. Bye. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Election Day. It is Tuesday, November 8th. Did you know that already? (laughs) We have been talking about it um, a lot over the last several months. Today is the big day. The only poll that matters is the poll of the votes that are cast in various local, state, and national elections. And it is not something that is going to be decided quickly. Don't let anybody tell you that because there are still races undecided tomorrow morning that that means that there was some kind of fraud or some kind of shenanigans because with mail-in balloting so popular, those votes take a while to get counted. 
And so we're all just going to sit back. We're going to put our feet up. We're going to fix ourselves an adult beverage. And we are going to talk about the future of democracy. I am joined by Professor William Muck. He is with uh, North Central College. We have him on to talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Today seems particularly relevant, William. Absolutely. Happy Election Day, Joan. It's, a, it's, a, it's an exciting day. day. Woohoo! We need to have sound effects for something like this. I don't know. Um, so how are you feeling about the future of democracy today? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying that democracy is on the ballot, and I very much think that's the case. I I will be watching tonight and early tomorrow morning to kind of see what plays out, because this is a moment where we're, we're seeing a test for the democracy and what direction is it going to move. And I think we've seen some, you know, predictions that it may move in a Republican direction. And I think that that's going to be significant as we start thinking about who's winning these elections, what type of ideology, what is their view on democracy? Like, though, we're going to know a lot more about that over the next couple of days. And It'll give us a preview of where we might be heading over the next five years or so. The next five years or so. Wow. Um, I think you're absolutely right about that. Do you, in your gut, have a feel? You know, Kevin McCarthy, supposedly, and unsurprisingly, is going around saying, oh, you know, we're going to take back the House tonight. It's just in the bag. And yet there are so many races that are very, very close. What do you think? Do you have a crystal ball? I don't. And, and I'll tell you what, in 2016, uh, when, when it was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, I went on the radio and I made a prediction. I basically said, there's no way that Hillary loses this election and then walked out of that interview and saw that Trump had won Florida. So I, I'm out of the prediction game a little bit. Uh, here's what I would say. I think we can step back and see some broad patterns, right? So we think about where we're at. And anytime you've got a midterm election, it's going to be, you're going to be swimming upstream for the president, right? So the Democrats are in a difficult position right now, separate from all the other things. Um, then you also have to think about the state of the economy, which is, you know, inflation isn't very good. Uh, Biden's approval rating are down, right? So all of those things do seem to support McCarthy's position that it could be a good night for Democrats. The other thing, though, is there's a lot of other intervening variables that are going to complicate what happens tonight. Uh, turnout is one of them. We're seeing some early responses or early data suggesting that turnout is high. Turnout, it looks even maybe even high among young people. So that's kind of an interesting thing that we haven't thought about, right? How is How are women's rights? How is the Dobbs decision, abortion? You know, how is that going to drive or not drive people to the polls, right? Those are the things that are going to make it a little more complicated. And I think, you know, Republicans are probably in, in a good position thinking that it's going to be a good night, but we won't know that until we actually count all the ballots. It's so much more difficult to predict the, the election results compared to what it was maybe 10, 20 years ago. Oh, I know. I mean, well, you know, I'm a lot older than you are, but I can remember when there was no early voting. There was no mail-in balloting. There was just election day. And then, you know, network news people would would do exit polling and like the polls would close at seven and like 702. They would say, OK, based on our exit polling, these are the winners. These are the losers. And those days, I miss those days, William. I miss those days. <laughs> They did make it simple, although I think what's happened in terms of expanding the vote and, and early voting and voting by mail, it, you know, it, it does, I think it increases the way and, in, or it increases the opportunities for people to vote. And I think that's a really, really good thing. But it also complicates the process. It means we gotta wait longer. It creates space for those who are looking to take advantage of that time for their own political ends, right? So it makes it a lot more complicated, but I think it's, it's probably worth it if it means we're getting more people to the polls. Mm-hmm. I follow a young man. Uh, he's a student at 
UCLA. Uh, he does a podcast with Joe Weinbanks called Intergenerational Politics, iGen Politics. And he has made his focus this election looking at anybody who is studying the demographics, because he has said all along that exactly what you were talking about before, Roe v. Wade, and the things that actually affect Gen Z, where they live, were going to have a real effect. And uh, he has been posting um, different surveys and numbers that's, that show exactly what you just alluded to, that not only is, um, is there um, an uptick in turnout, but that young people are turning out in greater numbers than they almost never do for a midterm election. Even today, he was reposting some video of students lined up at Texas A&M University, students lined up to vote, and it goes all the way down the hall and around the corner and down another hall. Um, Do you think that, um, I don't even know, frankly, which age Gen Z is anymore. All I know is I'm a boomer and I'm old and everybody younger than me is like a millennial to me. Um, but do you think that for the first time they realize that their lives will be changed if they don't get out and vote? I think so. And I'll, we'll see how that actually translates into the numbers. But but you feel it talking to students. And I think this midterm election, more than others that I can remember in my lifetime, students seem engaged, right? They, they realize that what's at stake. And, and I would say on both sides of the aisle, right? So both uh, my, my liberal and conservative students are highly motivated. So I think that's, that's what's going to be kind of fascinating to watch, to play out, to see who's showing up to vote, who are they voting for. And, and I think you're absolutely right to talk about demographics, young people, but also think about... Um, you know, African Americans, where are blacks voting? How, what is turnout there? Uh, the Latino vote, right? There's a lot of really interesting things that are at play now. And, and it's complicating how we understand these results. And, and you're right. It, it is more difficult to predict because there are more dynamics at play, right? And it's hard to understand. And I think we're going to see a lot of change in this election. And, you know, it, it's possible it goes in the more conventional way where Republicans take the House and the Senate. But it is also possible that we see new elements that we haven't fully appreciated before, whether that's young or, you know, uh, voters of color, like there are a lot of things that are up in the air. And I think that's as you opened with, that's why we got to count the ballots and then see how it all plays out. I'm speaking with Professor William Muck. He is a professor of political science at North Central uh, College in Naperville. We are going to take some calls and uh, I want to talk to you more about your students and the kinds of things that they're saying to you, issues that seem to be resonating with them when we come right back after this. Take Jonas Bezito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820 for accurate news coverage. I will tell you what Donald Trump is doing is not only an exercise in ego, but it's dangerous to the future of this country. Like you, the United States wants this war to end. The only country standing in the way of that is Russia. And factual conversations. The Republicans are defending a system that is in place today that allows murderers and rapists and domestic abusers to buy their way out of jail. Chicago's progressive talk. The hospitality industry is at the top of that list, and I'm confident that this ordinance will help them. WCPT. 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to the Joan Esposito Show. Live, local, and progressive. Brought to you by Fazio Insurance, an independent insurance agency serving residents and businesses in Will and DuPage counties since 1953. 
It is Tuesday, November 8th. It is the day of the midterm elections. I hope you uh, have either voted today or voted early or voted by mail. I hope you voted. It is uh, a very important day. There are some really fascinating races across the country. I'm joined by uh, Professor William Muck, who's at uh, North Central College in Naperville. He teaches political science. Uh, before we continue our conversation, I want to go to the phone lines. Stephanie is calling in from Kankakee. Hey, Stephanie, you're on with me and Professor Muck. Go ahead. My, my concern is never assessing students. If the GOP, let's say, does a red, you know, tsunami, and they get in, and they decide to implement all the crazy, how will we get back to any elections, fair or not, if they can just overturn them, pass laws to purge people, make sure that certain people don't vote? You know, how do we get back to, well, we will ever, ever see another fair election if they get in office? We're talking more than five years, because if they do this, they will cancel voting rights for everybody if necessary to stay in, you know, in a, a um, power. How do we yeah. combat that? Stephanie, you make, a, you make a great point. I mean, we always think that. You know, if an election doesn't go our way, well, then we just organize and we make sure the next election does go our way. But with gerrymandering and especially election deniers who've who've said that they're going to potentially throw out votes in future elections. And what was it? Was it um, I think it was I think it was um, the governor of uh, the Republican candidate for governor Michaels in Wisconsin who said to the people, Professor Muck, uh, vote for me and you'll never have to worry about voting ever again. What the heck does that mean? And and if they change the rules, how do we how do we kick the bums out? No, I think Stephanie is highlighting a really, really important development. And, and I, I, you know, as we think about democracy, I, and I'm talking about democracy on the ballot, we need to think about the ways in which democracy dies. And um, it used to be, and I think I've talked about this before, um, that, you know, democracy died with, when men with guns showed up. But now the way in which democracies die and the way in which democracies go away is through the democracy itself. So you get individuals who have authoritarian tendencies, who are, have anti-democratic tendencies, who use elections and populist platforms to undermine democracy using the tools of democracy, right? And so that's what we've seen over the last few years as we talk about voting rights. I think what's so important about this election is when you have, you know, a, a couple hundred election deniers on the ballot, many of whom would be secretary of states. They would be individuals in charge of elections. How is that going to change things moving forward when those individuals are suddenly in positions of power where they can make these decisions? Uh, and again, so democracies retrench, they decline they die nowadays by, you know, through the democratic process itself. And so I think that's why Stephanie is really, really making an important point. And, and again, why we should be thinking about not just about voter suppression, but also about the Secretary of State's, um, you know, thinking about this individual in Arizona, Mark Fincham, the Republican candidate. Um, he's an election denier in Arizona. And if he were to win, he would be in charge of the presidential election in 2024 in Arizona, right? There, these are really, really high stakes as we think about democracy and, and how that will play out in the future. Yeah. Um, let's take one more call uh, before we continue our conversation. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Professor Mock. Go ahead. 
Happy election day. All I want to say is, why don't they give a demonstration of how they determine the mail-in votes, signatures. I've signed my signature on different things. It completely, nobody could figure it out. My point is, give us a demonstration of who's looking at the envelope, who's checking these addresses, how does it work, is it effective enough? Where they, they, how many votes can they disqualify? Is this another hanging Chad case in 2000? Are we ever going to, I mean, how do we determine who's throwing out these votes and under what criteria? Does anybody want to demonstrate on terra firma that thing? Because the Republicans have already uh, demolished their election uh, integrity. I, I imagine they'll go to any length to win. Now, they, what do they care? Because uh, sanity certainly isn't a part of their platform. So uh, that's all I have to say. I wish somebody would demonstrate to me. They, they already talked about in Philadelphia that they, the guy's looking at the bill. I don't know if this signature is right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a hanging Chad case. It's another hanging Chad case down in Florida. I mean, this could hang on uh, with 12,000 votes. All they got disqualified is 12,000 votes. They were stuck with a lunatic. I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm with what's end with this. No demonstration of it. Uh, who's doing it? Uh, imagine if, uh, I mean, can they send a you know, Democrat? Or, you know, do they look into the ballot and see who is it for and then disqualify it? I mean, it, it, it's just completely opaque. Yeah. Anyway, Joan, I mean, real quick, they should call Illinois right away. Don't you think tonight? Because, I mean, if we lose Illinois, we might as well just <laughs> well, run to Canada. We might as well go to Canada immediately. <laughs> well, I don't think Democrats, yeah, I don't think Democrats will lose uh, any ground in Illinois. But we are a state that loves our mail-in ballots, and so we may have to be patient Jim, it might not yeah. it might not happen right away, but that doesn't mean that it won't happen. And, you know, Professor Mark, aside from what Jim was just talking about, he makes another good point about about the election, because we've already just in a very Trumpian fashion. There are already Republicans saying that, um, oh, if these if they're still counting ballots two or three days from now, it must mean that there's been fraud. Um, I mean, it's sort of like it may not be the big lie, but it's certainly a lie. Oh, it's certainly. And I think it will be interesting to watch tonight to see how many Republican candidates are making that argument. Uh, you know, does anybody come out? Does Donald Trump come out? Does Kerry Lake in Arizona come out and say that at a certain time, you know, they declare victory even before all the, the votes are counted? And and this issue of elect election fraud, it goes back a long ways of these accusations. But the reality is that elections in the United States are incredibly safe. And, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to some individuals who run those elections in different places. And, and the problem process is so secure, right? I mean, it is almost impossible to, to carry out any type of large-scale fraud. But that doesn't matter because, you know, you have certain politicians, Trump in particular, who start to spread this narrative. And the more they say it, the more legs it gets and the more people buy into it. It becomes really, really difficult to confront. Um, yeah, and I, I, am, I am sure we will see versions of that tonight, uh, given that, you know, for a lot of places, the, the mail-in ballots will be counted second. So it just means that those numbers are going to be different early in the evening versus late in the evening or early in the morning as well. I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure Carrie Lake has already said something to the effect 
that um, if the if the election isn't called tonight, that will almost certainly mean there will have been fraud. I think she's already I think she's already planting that flag um, and and, and making no bones really about scary. it. That's really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you, when you think about the implication of that, right? So the argument isn't that we should count all the ballots, right? The, the argument is we should only count certain ballots, right? We should only count certain votes, those people that vote during the day. It fits in with this broader argument about who is a real American and who should count. And I, I think some of what we've seen take place over the last, you know, f- four to six years uh, is, is really this argument about who matters. And if we're going to have a democracy, whose vote and voice should we listen to? So I, I think that's part of what she's driving at is to say that some some voters matter more and we can kind of think about the narrative in which she's pushing to say others who don't right those are you know those are democratic voters they're voters of color right they're dividing a us versus them element to say you know even if their votes are submitted we shouldn't count them the same and that's it's a really really uh dangerous and uh, uh, i don't know d- dynamic to get into sort of vilifying the other yeah absolutely we need uh, to take a break here in about a minute and a half. Um, but I want to, I want to continue our discussion. Um, I follow Eric Zorn, the former Tribune columnist who started a newsletter called the Picayune Sentinel. And if you're a paid subscriber, you get a Tuesday edition as well as uh, the unpaid Thursday edition. And today, I used to watch, uh, Bill, B- real time with Bill Maher on HBO, but his, his cynicism and smugness just put me off over time and, and I gave up on him. But in today's Tuesday edition of the Picayune Sentinel, Eric Zorn is quoting part of an essay that Bill Maher shared. And, um, when we come back after a break, I'm going to read a few paragraphs of it to you. Um, much as I don't like Bill Maher, I will say that in 2016, he and Michael Moore were two lone voices in the wilderness that said over and over again, people, you better wake up because Donald Trump is very likely to win this election. Very. And, and people were like, oh, you know, they're just being cynical. They're being so extreme. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, I'm talking to Professor William Muck from North Central College in Naperville. We are going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by political science professor William Muck. Uh, I was talking before the break about how Eric Zorn quoted something that was part of an essay that Bill Maher did on his HBO political show. And um, I think that while he's a little bit cynical and tries to be funny, he's not always wrong. Here's just a couple of paragraphs. This really is the crossing the Rubicon moment when the election deniers are elected, which is often how countries slide into authoritarianism. Not with tanks in the streets, 
but by electing the people who then have no intention of ever giving it back. The Republican up for a Wisconsin governor just said, if he's elected, Republicans will never lose another election. This is how it happens. Hitler was elected. So was Mussolini, Putin, Erdogan and Viktor Orban. This is the it can't happen to us moment that's happening to us right now. We just don't feel it. We're the Titanic right after the iceberg hit. Professor Muck, what do you think about that? You know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So like within the field of political science, there's a lot of people that study democracy around the world and historically. And when you look at what they're saying and the conversations we're all having, they're saying similar things, uh, that this is a really, really dangerous and precarious moment. And, and this election in particular is really important because of all of the things that you just said, right? That, that democracy can crumble so easily. We think that democracy is going to be there in perpetuity, but it needs to be nurtured nurtured. It needs to be, you know, rebuilt from within. And and so this is a really, really dangerous moment. I like to think about those moments after the January 6th, the days and weeks after the January 6th attack, where the Republicans were having a real conversation about saying it's time to move away from Trump. It's time to move away from the dangerous authoritarian behavior. It's time to move away from those who are rejecting the election and democracy and all of that. And there was a little bit of movement there, and then it was squashed, right? And I think that was such an important point, point, because at that point, Trump knew that he was still in control of the party, that he could continue to attack the democracy within. And, and we've seen a proliferation of Trump candidates around, around the country. Uh, the Republican Party is a reflection of Donald Trump. And I think that's a really, really dangerous place for the democracy to be. So, yeah, Bill Maher is absolutely correct in that way, that the scholars who study democracy talk about democracy dies from within. It's people being elected and then using the tools of democracy to undermine democracy itself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I, I think absolutely. I think he's he's very much onto something. Well, as long as we're talking about this radicalization of the Republican Party, let's look at it state by state. Let's start with Arizona. Yeah, I think, I think, I don't think the, what's happened in the Republican Party in Arizona has gotten nearly enough attention. So after 2020, uh, that party decided to go all in on Donald Trump and, and it removed all of the more moderating voices in that party. So, you know, you think about the Republican Party in Arizona, you think of John McCain, a centrist, a maverick. I mean, he was not somebody who was sort of a diehard ideological Republican, uh, but that party has moved in a very, very different uh, way. So Rusty Bob who was the uh, head of the House there, uh, who testified uh, in front of the January 6th committee. He was censured. They censured John McCain's wife, right? I mean, you think about all of the history. Uh, They've used the last couple of years to attack John McCain's record, uh, Carrie Lake in particular. So you've seen this radicalization of that Arizona Republican Party where there's no more centrist. It's all in in terms of the Trump ideology. And I think this is going to be a model for other states if they are successful. So we'll see what happens, you know, Kerry Lake is likely to win. But let's look at those other positions. What happens in the Senate? What happens in the Secretary of State position? What happens with those other offices? If the Republicans do well in Arizona, it will stand as a model for other Republican parties around the country. And I expect we'll see more common patterns across those states where they they once again re-embrace, fully embrace Donald Trump. So I think it's it's really a pivotal moment, this election, to sort of see, is that model successful or will the, will the voters say it's simply too far and we're not comfortable with that? 
Well, you know, I always keep say on this radio show, there's more of us than there are of them. But you know, the majority of people who aren't that radical um, sometimes are too apathetic. And it's like you say, you know, it's not going to be um, we wake up to tanks in the streets. It's going to be the death of a thousand cuts. I want to revisit something you said a few minutes ago where there was that brief moment where it looked like that Donald Trump was going to be um, sent to the dumpster. I remember I remember thinking that we were at that moment when during the second impeachment Mitch McConnell said publicly that he was not going to tell any Republican senator how to vote on this. Basically, he was giving them permission to vote to not, you know, the obviously the House impeaches. Then the Senate can take that impeachment and vote to kick somebody out of office, which also prevents them from ever running again. And it was taken as Mitch McConnell saying, I'm done with this guy You know, the Democrats have given us this beautiful opportunity to excise this tumor from our party. Let's let's do it. You know, we can blame them. They brought the impeachment. They impeached him. But we can use what has already happened to make sure that he's marginalized going forward. And I don't know what you read or heard. I didn't read anybody writing about this directly, but I heard that. What happened privately was that there were a bunch of Republican senators who went to Mitch McConnell and said, you know, we don't we are scared. We don't want to do this. You know, he's still got a lot of followers. And while, you know, you you might be right, he might be a cancer and this is an opportunity to to get rid of him. It doesn't do me any good if I get primaried and I lose my job in the Senate. And all of a sudden, Mitch McConnell went very quiet and nothing happened. It seemed to me that was, you know, people are always saying, well, it's an inflection point. That to me was one of those times where things could have gone so differently. What do you think about that? I think it's spot on. Absolutely. There are moments, you know, democracies always stumble, but then there's that moment where they can right the ship. And I think that was absolutely one of those moments where, you know, the Republican Party and in particular, the Republican leadership was signaling that let's move on. Let's move in another direction from all accounts, you know, journalistic accounts, uh, Mitch McConnell and even McCarthy to some degree are not in love with Donald Trump. But it's that fear factor. They were they were afraid. And then other members of the Republican Party were afraid. Afraid because the masses and Donald Trump would move against them. And, and so when they missed that moment, history played out a very, very different direction. And so think, you know, in the, in the weeks afterwards, then those voices who were critical of Donald Trump, the Liz Cheney's and, and others were suddenly attacked by, by the Donald Trump machine. He is, he is very good at targeting those who are not on board and eliminating, right? We can think about the long line of candidates who are no longer in positions of power, who have decided not to run because Trump turned on them. And and so it was fear. It was absolutely fear. But they did have that moment to show courage, to try to eliminate Donald Trump. And it could have it could have gone in a better direction. You know, just as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, South Korea, which had a similar situation where they had a corrupt president uh, and they went in and they got her out of office. They you know, she ended up serving jail time. But it wasn't just removing the leader. It was removing everybody else who was connected with that president to say, you know, we've got to remove all those individuals who are part of 
that movement. And and that was the moment when the Republican Party could have moved back to its more traditional role and been real conservatives. And uh, and they missed it, I think. And, and so we're still struggling with that. And it doesn't appear that Donald Trump is going anywhere in anywhere time soon. Yeah, I agree with you. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back right after a break. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT820. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by uh, political science professor William Muck, who's with North Central College in Naperville. I want to talk to you about something that the listeners of this show have heard me rant about for a while. Bad candidates. I know that there's always a few that are stronger than others, but this seems to be a remarkable crop. J.D. Vance, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz. I mean, these guys, as I I said earlier today, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, these guys wouldn't have been allowed into a committee meeting of the Republican Party, let alone gotten a Republican endorsement for such a high office. How do you feel about all these? Do you agree with me that there are a lot of bad candidates? Oh, yes. Stunningly bad, right? I mean, when you start with, (laughs) I mean, I think Herschel Walker. Yes, right. I mean, Herschel Walker is the leader of the bad candidates. And it's, it's, it's almost, you almost feel sorry because it's clear that he is a big name and he has a, a wonderful political career, but he has no business running for political office. He's just clearly out of his element there. And, and not only is, is it sort of beyond where he should be doing, but, but he's had so many scandals, scandal after scandal, which undermine the, you know, the, the Republican ideology. So it may, it, it's sort of shocking that, that they've continued to, to have success. And, you know, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin, and Ron Johnson is another one where you say this this is a candidate that should be beat, beatable. Oz, J.D. Vance, all of them really feel like weak candidates. But what's really fascinating about the unique moment that we find themselves in is all of them are probably going to win. Um, and that that should cause us to step back and say, what is going on here? Um, my colleague, uh, Dr. Suzanne Chad, who you've talked to in the past, mm-hmm. she talks about that the political system has become calcified, right? It's become cemented in place place. And that really so much, none of the campaign stuff really seems to matter much anymore. Uh, that you have a candidate, doesn't matter if that candidate is good or bad, you know, violates any of the core rules of the party, uh, they're still going to have electoral success. So it's, it's so revealing of the unique moment that we're at because it, it used to be that, you know, if a party nominated a bad candidate, the, the populace, the demos would, would punish them to say, this is a bad candidate. And even if we support your ideology, we're not going to vote for that candidate. And we're well beyond that, right? It's, it's party and all of that above anything else. The candidates, the candidates themselves don't seem to really matter. Yeah, it, it's, that's exactly it. It's almost like they're some kind of just weird placeholder. The candidate doesn't matter because we know that the people who are really, really ardent Republicans, ardent Donald Trump supporters will vote for anybody 
that we put out there. There seems to be just such a cynicism about it. Yes, and I think, and sort of think where that leaves the party, right? So, what is what is party doctrine? Well, uh, at the previous you know convention uh, when Donald Trump was nominated, they didn't have a platform, um, and then that's I think that's also revealing, right? That the party doesn't stand for anything other than the individual who is the nominee, Donald Trump. So Donald Trump will dictate what the party believes, um, and so then you also are nominating candidates for the Senate, right? The Senate, the the world's most deliberative body who I don't think can have a real deliberative conversation, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine J.D. Vance and Oz and, and Herschel Walker figuring out all of our problems, right? So it's it, it sort of suggests that you, you've got one individual who's driving the process, and that one individual isn't grounded in a clear philosophy. You know, Donald Trump is not a conservative. Um, he's a very different type of politician. So it puts the, the, the Republican Party in a really, I think, precarious place where they are entirely dependent upon Donald Trump. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, again, an extraordinary moment. And isn't that a terrible place to be? Um, I know in your in the email where we communicated earlier, you were telling me about what you've been seeing in the country of Chile and what you are taking away from that. Could you explain to my listeners what you're talking about there? Sure, of course. Yeah, I gave a talk this week, and I give a lot of talks about democracy, Joan, and most of them are really dire. Like most of them, I'm talking about, you know, globally, democracy is on the decline. In the United States, democracy is on decline. It's hard to find an exciting story about democracy. But I really am inspired by what's going on there. And again, our listeners probably aren't following very closely what's going on in Chile, but they've had a referendum on a new constitution. Um, and I will say, in September, they voted, and they voted the constitution down. So it didn't pass, and they're going to go back and work on it again. Again, but I think it's really inspiring what they've done. So in 2019, uh, the government raised uh, the, the price of, of subways and, they, you know, like 30 pesos, basically nothing. Uh, but it led to this protest movement where the public was pushing back against this. And that protest movement grew to these, this huge size where basically all of the country of Chile wanted to reform the political system. And they pushed for a constitutional referendum uh, and to say, we want to rewrite a new constitution. And that's, that's what they did. And they elected people from the the public itself to write this constitution. It was really long. It had like 388 articles. But in those articles, it talked about, you know, equal rights for women, that that was going to be mandatory, LGBTQ rights. Uh, it was thinking about the environment and protecting the environment, animal rights. And I mean, it was just extraordinary in terms of how it was thinking about solving problems. It was, it was without question the most progressive constitution in the history of the world. But I think beyond that, it was a constitution that is looking forward to say, what are the problems that we face in the 21st century and how can we go about solving those and how can we create a political system to solve that? And one of the things I noted that in the United States, we always look backwards. We always look backward <laughs> to the founding fathers, to the Constitution. You know, what do they think about, about the internet and regulating speech on social media? And I think it's so inspiring that a country could come together and say, we want to try again. We want to come up with a new Constitution and, and think about how do we structure a political system so we can adapt and confront problems in the 21st century. So again, it didn't pass, but I I have no doubt that they're going to go back and some of those ideas that were in that first constitution are going to show up in the second one. So I I think it's really inspiring for, for Americans to think about, hey, we've got a system that is not performing well. But we could think about reforming them. And it's actually not all that difficult to think about. Let's engage in a process of fixing our democracy. Give us some advice for tonight. Uh, Patty Vasquez, Tim Hogan and I are going to be 
anchoring election night coverage from 6 to 10 p.m. tonight. We're going to be talking with a lot of guests because, as you well know, there aren't going to be uh, as many hard and fast results as we might otherwise wish for. Um, what do you think should be the the issues or the races or the ideas that we focus on tonight or at least consider? It- you know, I, I think what we've a lot of what we've talked about in the last hours is is the future of democracy. Uh, you know, what is really taking place? You know, when you were talking about Bill Maher and reading that quote, I think he was he has that where we need to think about what is taking place in front of our eyes. What are we really watching when when candidates are running on, on election denying positions? Like, what does that mean for the democracy? And and I, so I think that's that's the biggest thing that I, that I will be watching to see how much traction does that that position have tonight? You know. Are voters going out and supporting election deniers? And in what numbers, right? That's, mm-hmm. you know, estimates are anywhere between like 180 and 200 election deniers are on the ballot. How well do they do? Um, and also, I, the other thing I'm going to be watching and talking about and thinking about tonight is the Senate. You know, what are we seeing there? You know, the, the Democrats are, are defending four seats that I think are really, really close. What are we seeing there? What does turnout look like there? Um, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm going to be watching about it and watching for and looking at, because I think those are really going to tell us a lot about about, you know, where we are and what the democracy is going to be doing moving forward. In the last just in the last few days, I've been seeing a lot of posts on social media that say, hey, you know what? You know, inflation comes and goes, but not having autonomy over your own body is forever if we don't have the right legislators and I thought that it was a very effective message. You know, they're always doing the polls. Well, you know, people care about gas prices and they care about inflation. Well, those are the kinds of things that sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. It's um, it's not something where we change the laws and our lives are different forever, which it seems to me with the with the loss of Roe v. Wade and election deniers and people who want to ban contraception and no more in vitro fertilization and all of this, that there's a bigger picture. And I'm worried that people who are not like you and me and don't really spend a lot of time on this, you know, the people who are busy with their families and their jobs, that they're going to look at the the problems with a small P and ignore the problems with a big P. Do you think I'm worried about nothing? No, no, I think you're I think you're right on, because when you look at some of the polling, so, of course, they go out and ask people, like, what are the most important issues in front of you right now? And what we're seeing in increasing numbers is it's the economy and it's inflation. And that is, you know, by far the biggest concern of Americans. And you have to drop down quite a bit. And I think the most recent one I saw was I think it had democracy at nine percent. They were worried about that. And and women's rights and abortion at eight percent. Right. And so that's a much lower. So, you know, now that doesn't mean that's what's going to play out at the polls tonight. But I think you're right to say that it's those bread and butter economic issues that oftentimes decide elections. And that's what are, that's what Republicans are going to hope happen tonight. But I, I think you're right to say that there are deeper, you know, democratic issues at play here. And, and that's what that's what I'll be watching to, to see. You know, how did the American public respond to these developments over the last couple of years? Well, I was talking about how Michael Moore and Bill Maher were two voices in the wilderness trying to tell us that Donald Trump was a real threat. 
I thought it's interesting that even despite what I shared with you about what Bill Maher is saying, Michael Moore has uh, was interviewed uh, with Joy Reid on MSNBC, and he said to her that he thought that Democrats were going to do well because he was like, he was like, Republicans would like you to believe that women have just forgotten about Roe v. Wade. Oh, it happened. It happened a couple of months ago. You know, it's not front and center. He said, I think that is a ridiculous attitude to take toward this election. Maybe that's what they'd like people to believe. But he said, I can't believe that women who have had basic rights taken away from them are suddenly going to be, oh, well, that was a couple of months ago. We don't remember that anymore. And he said that he thought Dems would do better than expected because of that. Agree or disagree? It's you know what it's it's hard. I, I'm not going to make a prediction because I don't know. <laughs> My guess is that you know the the economy is going to be the big factor. But but I you know as I we opened, I was talking about those variables. I think that's the one question, right? We live in a world where our attention span is you know from one tweet to the other. But but these are fundamental issues of women's rights and democracy. And and I again, I am so curious to see whether that drives people to the poll. If it does, I will be pleasantly surprised, right? That that's something more than just Yay. the economic dynamics. <laughs> driving. So that's 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 what I'm rooting for, Joan. <laughs> okay. Professor William Muck, North Central College in Naperville. We are going to uh, well, Patty Vasquez is going to be here for the next hour. I'm going to come back and join her at six and we'll see what happens. Please come back and join us at that time. I'll see you in a little bit.